Hey, what's going on? I'm Jeremy Lee, and you are listening to episode 11 of Reading the Play, the show where athletes share their story and experiences about life and sports. Additionally, we'll break down some key decisions they made so you can get a better understanding of their journey and where they are today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear other great stories by athletes. You can also find them on sportcalgary.ca. For more content, follow the Facebook page Reading the Play and to get the latest news, including new episodes dropping. Follow on Instagram at Reading the Play or myself at Legacy. In this episode, I have a lengthy chat with Dallas Sunius, former professional volleyball player who has some crazy stories around the globe. He is also the first Aboriginal to represent Canada at the national level. I'm going to keep this intro short because Dal's booked an extended stay here on Story Island. And it looks like he's all warmed up on the hot seat. Let's get it. Dallas Sunia is paying a visit to Story Island today just to share some knowledge, just to drop some wisdom. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Did you ever have any nicknames when you were a player? This K. So I met a girl last night whose name is Dallas. And we went through this because I'm like, what do you, did you, do you have, because Dallas generally doesn't have a lot of nicknames. Um, Just Dal? Yeah, Dal. Although I did have a girlfriend once who called me Dal and it just annoyed me to no end. But that's more of a personal thing. Uh, this, this girl I met last night, people call her Salad because Dallas backwards takeaway in L is salad but um that didn't stick for me probably just because I was like come on you can do better than that and then no one ever did so no no one really d money d smack for a little bit so your journey begins all the way back in Saskatoon but is that where you started playing volleyball no so I I was born in Saskatoon and then when I was like zero we moved to Red Deer Alberta um so that's more or less where everything began for me. But like I was born in Saskatoon. Do you know Gavin Schmidt? He's a buddy of mine. Yeah. He played on the national team. Yeah. Um, he was born in Alberta. I was born in Saskatoon. And basically, when we were both young, we switched provinces. So people just assume he was born in Saskatoon, which he wasn't. He was born in Grand Prairie. And people assume I was born in Alberta, but I was not. I was born in Saskatoon. But that's something nobody cares about <laughs> it's like a draft day trade yeah pretty much straight like kobe you know or lonzo and were you like six foot five coming out of the womb i don't think so me, me and my brother my brother's the same height as me we were always tall growing up um i'm sure we had a growth spurt but i was always or we were both always tall uh and we're pretty lucky because that way we knew how to control our bodies pretty much Whereas I, I know, I, I see kids who will grow like nine inches over the summer and they're just like, like deer again. You know what I mean? But we were... All... No, I don't know what you mean. Okay. So like... <laughs> Being 5'7". Like I imagine these guys have growing pains and whatnot, which I remember having looking back as a kid. I'm just like, why does my body hurt at night? But I, I can't imagine growing like nine inches over the course of a summer. You probably started playing a whole bunch of different sports growing up. Yes. So, again, my brother and I, um, shouts to my parents, shouts to Bev and Rod. They put Srain, that's his name, Srain and I, into like baby gymnastics when we were like... Nice. Yeah. And I really think, although I can hardly remember any of the experience, I really think that 
had a lot to do with why Serena and I can control our bodies because that's all you're learning in these weird little tumbling classes is teaching little kids how to like control themselves. So that coupled with the fact that we were, we were always tall, that really put us at an advantage. Um, that being said, when I got into middle school um, and high school, I remember a time where I was on six different teams at one, at one time, like handball, vo- like two volleyball teams, like a basketball team, some other, just some other stuff, like lots and lots of teams. So like, bless to my moms for driving me everywhere because I couldn't drive at this point. Um, but I really think, uh, and, and, and of course studies show that the more, you, the more things you do, the better you are controlling your body when you do decide to, uh, to specialize. When did you decide to specialize? So it was in grade nine, more or less. We were mainly basketball players, me and my brother. Uh, but Strain, he was a great basketball player. And in Red Deer, well, growing up, wherever you grow up, you're like, well, this is the whole world. And I assumed everybody, everybody just knew my brother as the basketball player. And I was the little brother trying to keep up constantly, which was actually really helpful in just learning to compete. Because when you have your older brother and his friends constantly clowning you, both physically and emotionally, like you just want to compete, right? So I, I think that was something that was ingrained in me to just constantly compete. But so he was the basketball player. I went to uh, a different high school than my brother so I could kind of do my own thing. And volleyball season comes before basketball. So I... Uh, my, my friends were like, yo, come try this volleyball thing. And I'm like, no, nah, man, we, I'm a baller, baby, you know? Ball is life. That's yeah, right. exactly. Trying to cross people up in the hallway. Uh, they're like, you got to do this to stay in shape, man. And plus, we're all doing it. I'm like, okay, all right, we'll give it a go. So uh, I started. I was awful. The first time, I remember the first tryout, like, uh, I got hit in the head with a ball, like, trying to pass it. Um, I tried to, like, hit a ball. Uh, I could jump. The first time I tried to hit it, I jumped really high and I swung really hard and completely missed the ball. Um, so that's like the first two things, my first two official actions with volleyball. But it obviously got better from there. And it, because it was a new thing, I really enjoyed it. And it was a new challenge. And it was my own thing. I was going to say, did it feel like you were stepping out of the shadow of your brother? I kind of think so. I believe so. Looking back on it, that would make the most sense. Um, because like I said, like in, in my mind, he was a big figure in, in the basketball scene. So we, I played on the grade nine team and then I played, I've, all my friends, they had been playing club, club volleyball. So they're like, you got to try out, we got to try this. So I went, uh, and after the first day of tryouts, I'm like, these guys are so much better than me. There's no way I'm making this team. So I didn't go back the second day. It was a three day tryout. And the coach gave my parents a call and was like, where's Dallas? Mm. They're like, you got to come back. So I went back and I made the team, luckily. And it was a ton of fun because it opened up so much more. So really, basically, since I was in grade nine, I've been playing volleyball year round up until I was like 33 or 32 or something like that. So for you improving in the game of volleyball, did that come quickly for you? I think uh, I think so. And uh, it was encouraging right from the start. I remember the first tournament in grade nine. We were playing at Red Deer College. I had no idea, no idea what I was doing. 
Um, I'm in the middle. I'm left-handed, but I was playing in the middle because that's what you do. You put the tall, dumb guy in the middle. Uh, and I remember a couple points into our first game, something happened, and I think they just had to set me. There was no one else to set, so they set me. And I, I hit it. And then all the parents, there was a big roar, like, oh, good hit. And I was like, really? Okay, cool. I think I got this. So then uh, that was really encouraging right from there. And, and I, th I do think I progressed fairly quickly. But again, that was due to the, I, I always had good coaches. I was super lucky with that. And I was able to, I, I was a quick study, you know, because I, I knew how to control myself physically, mm. not emotionally, but physically at that time. What does it look like to work on your game though at that age? I mean, with basketball, you can just go to the gym, work on free throws, work on ball handling, do things on your own. But volleyball is such a team sport. How did you refine your skills and your game and all that at that age? Well, luckily, a lot of the kids from my grade nine team, they, we were all on the same club team. So, and we loved the sport. We were at that age where we were just like, we constantly want to play, you know? So we would rent out gyms or go to our high school gym like on the weekend whenever it was free, um, when it was open. And we just play pepper or do whatever we can. Because at that age, it doesn't hurt yet. <laughs> like it's still, you can go in, you don't even need to warm up. It's just like, let's go, there's a net, let's do, let's do the whatever. And even if there's not a net, you can like, there's stuff you can do. Sure. But you need, like you said, it's such a social game. You need people to, for the most part, to improve. There are ways to practice alone, um, but it's a lot more fun <laughs> to do with a couple people. Absolutely. Can we chat a little bit about what the club scene, and by club, I mean club volleyball, but we can also talk about the club scene, Word. nightclub scene mm -hmm. at, in Red Deer. Yeah. Big club scene. Yeah. Billy Bob's. Oh my gosh, Billy Bob's. I boycotted that place just because like me and my, it felt like me and my brother were the, were the only First Nations kids in all of Red Deer. I'm sure we, I know we weren't, but it sure felt like that. So I'm like, we're not going to mess with that cowboy bowl. You know what I'm saying? We're just going to do our own thing over here. I feel like I would have got kicked out just for walking in there. Right. Obviously I wouldn't been there since but it was not my scene but the volleyball club scene it's different now today than yeah. when you than when you grew up it's I, I still don't have a full grasp on what it is now but the idea that 15 year old kids are having to like sign contracts to play for clubs or the clubs are having them sign contracts just the idea of like committing to a club when you're 15 blows my mind like growing up in red deer we had one team it was the Kings and we like, I think we may have struggled to put the team together. And maybe that's why the coach called my parents on that day. It's like, we need the numbers, man. And now, I mean, that's Red Deer. It's obviously a smaller place. Um, but coming to Calgary, there's so many clubs and I'm starting to understand what, what parents and coaches were talking about when I would chat with them when I was back in the summers or something, just about the, the politics of <laughs> club volleyball. Which still blows my mind, and I'm trying desperately not to get entangled into that. It's a different world, man. Yeah. As, there's so much more money involved, too, as well. Like, club dues are expensive. Luckily, equipment isn't expensive. That's, like, part of the reason I played volleyball in the first place. And parents are paying a lot of money for private sessions or whatnot, which, if you have the means for that, of course you would do that. But it, this is something that just wasn't around when I was coming up. You know, like I, I remember 
like just, just in terms of the financial aspect, I played one year of hockey when I was in like grade five or whatever. Sure. And we bought, we bought, um, I think it was called all-star sports or re reruns. I don't know. We bought all this janky, like stuff from like the seventies and I'm wearing it. And I'm sure the bill was like three or $500. But even as a kid, I'm like, this sport is so expensive. Like I can't be doing this. Like volleyball, you need a ball. You don't even need shoes. Like it's advisable to wear shoes, but like you need a ball or something that looks like a ball. It's the same with soccer. In like Brazil. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent here. No, that's fine. I think that's why Brazil is so good at volleyball and, and soccer. Because these are sports you don't need equipment for. You just need something that looks like a ball. And you can just get better. Start with where you're at. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of Brazil, did you ever play beach volleyball? Uh, a little Competitively? bit. Competitively? Uh, once, basically. Okay. Like some tournaments. It's not really your thing then. No, okay. I wish it was. Um, beach volleyball is so much fun and you have to be so much better. You have to be such a better player to be good at beach volleyball than you do indoor volleyball because you need, you're constantly doing all the skills, right? Uh, the one time I did play, this is like 2002 or something. So it was the first year that there was high school beach volleyball provincials. So I played and me and my buddy won, but I think it's a much bigger thing now. Mm. Um, and so it should be. Yeah. But I know a lot of professional volleyball players from from the States, uh, a lot from California, who, if they could make the money in beach volleyball that they do in indoor volleyball, they'd completely be playing beach. Now, you can make money down there on the AVP tour or like the other tours, there's tours. But it's still, if you're a good player, if you're a really good player, it's not it's not comparable to what you can make playing indoor volleyball. Especially overseas? Yeah. Yeah, like in, uh, well, I, thinking specifically, I remember having a chat with, uh, I think it was Sean Rooney, who, oh, he's not on the American team anymore. I think he was the captain for a little bit. He, I mean, he wanted to play. I remember him saying that he would have played beach. He likes it a lot more, but it financially just doesn't make sense. So you develop your skills at the Kings Volleyball Club. And then was it just a natural progression for you to then be noticed and gain attention by the RDC Kings? Well, I don't know, because I'm looking at through the lens of a, of a kid, like I'm an, as an adult now, I would, I would take a look at this skinny kid and be like, okay, he's tall. Maybe we can develop him into something. But as the kid, like everyone's so much better than me. Like, I don't think I got a shot. After that club season, I tried out for the provincial team, which is what you do. All the kids do that. And I'm, I was like the last guy to barely make that roster. Sean Sky, the head coach at uh, Mount Royal University, was my coach. And I don't really remember this, but he remembers telling me, t- taking me into the room, to, like after the tryout, he's taking everybody in. And apparently, I walk in and got my head down and... Like, yeah, or he, he, he says what most coaches say. He's like, how do you think the tryout went? And I'm like, oh, it wasn't really good. You know, I didn't do whatever, whatever. And he's like, well, I think we have a spot. You're going you're gonna to be basically a red shirt. And I, I perked up and I, I apparently I started cursing at him. But I didn't, but it was like, are you, are you having getting me? Like you said, like, I stood up and I got all excited. And then he told me the red shirt part. And I'm like, do I still get the gear? Because as a young fella, 
playing in the club tournaments, I saw like these amazing players who are like 15 years old, ha- like warming up in their Al- like Team Alberta shirt. I'm like, oh, someday, maybe. Just want that. It's all I wanted. Yeah. And luckily, it was. I, I remember this. We had a great team. Guys that played on the national team from this like midget. They don't even call it midget anymore. It was like U15 or whatever. We had guys that played on the national team, on that team. And I remember eventually... I worked into a starting role somehow. Like I got on the roster and then at the, there's only one tournament. It seems like it's a huge season, but it's like a month and a half or something. Okay. By the end of it, uh, I eventually did get to like start. And uh, I mean, that was awesome. It was Mm -hmm. a big part of developing, just being around really good players. And like I said, being around players that are better than me, it's built into me to compete and just try to be better. You know, so I, I was, it was, it's two years, right? Like 15, 16 or something. So I was like 15. So these guys are so much better. So it was fun competing. But I'm assuming that experience with Team Alberta really then ignited your passion for wanting to take this sport further. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like I, I realized, I remember, I think it was that year. It might've been the next year on the provincial team. I think I, I was sitting out of practice because of injury because it's a lot of training especially when you're young and you don't have the muscles on your skeleton. I remember sitting on a, on a stationary bike and I have a volleyball and I'm setting it and I'm watching practice and I realized, holy crap, I wonder, I think someday this game could like pay for my education. I should like focus up, <laughs> like get it together. Um, that's when I realized, okay, maybe I should look forward a little bit that maybe I could play college or university or something like that. What steps did you take then afterwards to get it into a post-secondary team? So what I did, um, I, I, I was playing on the provincial team and like the Canada Games team with a couple fellows named uh, Brock Davidock, Robert Ellis, and Nicholas Cundy. These are all very high-level players, national team and whatnot. Rob didn't play on the national team, probably should have. In his mind, he would have been the greatest player ever. <laughs> I guess you have to know Rob. <laughs> But he should, have, he should have been on the national team at one point or another. Anyways, these guys all went to RDC. They're a year older than me. So when I'm in grade 12 at, at Hunting Hills High School, they, the RDC team has some injuries and whatnot, and they need practice players. So because I knew these guys, uh, uh, they asked me to come train with them. So I would go and I would like play middle or whatever. So in doing that, Keith Hansen, the coach at the time, I think he's the most winning coach in North American volleyball history. I think he is. I think he may have got that award recently. He has like, I think he has like 10 rings. It's crazy. He's the coach. And I think that's just how he saw me. Um, so that's kind of how I got on with RDC. I do remember I'd be going to like a 7.30 practice at Red Deer College. Then I'd whip to the high school. I'd practice at noon and then we'd have volleyball practice after school and then maybe like handball so this is in the this is when i'm on like a billion teams at this point sure i do remember telling uh or asking keith if i can i went into his office one day and i'm like can i practice this day like is it okay if i join on that day um he's like well dallas if you're gonna keep joining I'm, I think I'm going to need some assurances or something that, uh, that, that you come here next year. And at that point I was like, Oh wow, he wants me to come here. 
So I told, like, it was very quick. I'm like, oh, I'm definitely coming here next year. I don't know if you knew that. Like, I would love to come here. And that, that was it. Hmm. Um, but I would like to point out, that's a terrible idea to do that. I played at Red Deer College and at the University of, of Alberta. Neither school gave me any sort of scholarship. <laughs> and I didn't, re- I didn't re- like, think about this until a couple of years ago. Like, I played all, I played four years never got a dime or whatever and i think pretty much everybody else on both those teams was getting scholarships so but not your boy i just sold myself for for free but you realize this after yeah uh, like at the end of my pro career and i remember i had the chat with terry and uh, terry danilek the coach that's right yeah and i had the chat with keith hansen like so you guys didn't offer me anything he's like well you didn't ask you just showed up and then they have that money to allocate to somebody else but i think both of them said they'd buy me a beer at some point so i guess it was <laughs> i guess it's on me for being terrible at negotiating but that's i think that's a really important lesson for those up and coming know what's available for you yeah yeah like i i even now i i, I wouldn't know how to negotiate that with uh with the school because in my mind it's education so and you hear so much about how like you're not supposed you're not getting paid like your your education is your payment or whatever that being said i did get a full ride scholarship to play at brigham young university and i did play there for 33 days and then i realized ah this is not for me <laughs> i'm getting out of here so i left and i came back in time to play another year at rdc what wasn't for you at BYU? Mostly the Mormonism, if I'm honest. Okay. I had come from the. I, I, I had just come from Iran. We had just played. Uh, I was on the junior national team, and we had just finished a tough summer. I mean, as a kid, it's it's tough, like training a lot. Um, and then we were in Iran for a couple couple weeks. We actually got knocked out of the tournament really early. Uh, and we were stuck there like another week and a bit. That was really tough. I broke my finger during the tournament. So like we were beating Brazil in the tournament and like a dummy, like this is an audio medium, but so I'll try to describe it. I was blocking their main hitter and because we were shutting him down, the, the game was turning like we we're going up on these dudes, but I was blocking over the net horizontally with my finger so i was like it was like i was pointing my fingers directly at the ball that was being crushed at me instead of angling my hand a little bit so as to direct the ball down i'm just like reaching straight forward at this attacker and i got him a couple times but then he got me and exploded uh one of the tendons in my fingers that was a that was a huge issue um i felt something hit me in the hand really hard the, the play kept going. We did a whole other play. Then I went to scratch my chest and I looked down and my fingers just kind of, it's bent in the right direction, but I'm not meaning to bend it. All my other fingers are straight. And I'm like, holy crap, I can't control that finger. So I walk towards the, the umpire, the down ref. And I'm like, I need out. It's an international ref. I'm sure he spoke English, but he was like, no, no, no. Nobody called it a timeout or whatever. So I hold my hand up to him and he's like, takes a step back and just like ushers me off he's like oh okay go go um and then like 10 iranian doctors descended on the court and everybody's trying i think they're all just bored they're like okay what can we do what can we do what's wrong what's wrong with this canadian player 
And I got I got in a cab and they ripped me to the uh, to the hospital. That was a crazy ride driving through Tehran with our trainer. Cab driver's just going for it because he's like, I got an excuse, you know, I'm gonna rip. And then they once we got to the hospital, they're like, Yeah, there's basically nothing we can do. We'll just throw it in a cast, like a little finger cast. And that was the end of my tournament. And then I found out that the team we had lost that game, uh, and I think that would have that would have advanced us into the next round. But that was that. So I just come from that tournament. Um, we land in Calgary, no Edmonton. We were training in Edmonton. My mother picks me up. We drive like 20 hours down to Utah. They drop me off, and I'm in the bubble of Mormonism. Um, I grew up Christian, but I'm not a Christian. I'm really not. Uh, there's guys on that team, Mormons, um, from, say, California. And I remember having the talk with them when I was there about how strict everything was. Like, you couldn't, there wasn't Coca Cola on campus because there's caffeine. That's an addiction. You can't, it's, it's an incredibly clean lifestyle. Sure. I just couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I needed to like cut loose at that point. I, I bet you, and I've thought about this a lot, if I had taken two weeks off after that trip in Iran and then gone to BYU, I would have been in a much better headspace and I could have made that work, you know? Uh, but even talking with these other dudes from, from different, uh, different parts of the U.S. coming to Provo, they're like, this is kind of crazy for us too. So they, they could understand, like even growing up Mormon, like I... I'm not so like it was but for them growing up Mormon yeah and it it was a lot for them to handle Hmm. Um, so there was me and another uh, dude from Puerto Rico me and him were kind of just like man this is an incredible opportunity but the lifestyle like he stuck it out good for him and he became an international player after that that being said I lasted 33 days I went back to RDC and we ended up winning that year Again, we had a really good year. We lost like one game the entire year. Since I left BYU, a guy named uh, Victor Batista was able to come up from the Dominican Republic. And he did really well. And they they won the NCAA championship that year. So it worked out for everybody. We both won. And Victor, uh, me and Victor actually became good friends because he played on the national team for the Dominican Republic. So... We got to know each other really well. It all worked out. That's he, amazing. He got married down in Utah. He's got kids now. Like that that dude's life changed because I left, and that's that's positive. You know, it's a good thing. It's like a serendipity. Yeah, totally, totally. And me and Victor, I remember on the national team we would play against each other. But one year in Spain, our two teams played against each other for for the league championship. Like it was just good. I'm I'm, I'm just happy that another dude got an opportunity because I got out of a situation that wasn't right for me. So you spend two years at RDC and you come away with two national championships and really just two incredible teams. Were they the same both years or what was the composition of both teams like? They were quite different, actually. The first year we had Aaron Shula, who's now the coach at RDC, who is an incredible player. He was the backbone of our team even though we had a lot of... Well, actually, he did play on the national team for a little bit. But we also had Brock Davidock and Nicholas Cundy. And these guys played on the national team for a while. Um, But Shula was definitely the backbone of the team. I like talking about how good he was to young players because without him, we wouldn't have won. 
Um, and we, we actually won a championship together at U of A. The next year when we didn't have Shula, we lost because we didn't have what he brought to the team. He was so dependable um, in reception and he was always a smart attacker. We had dude like Nicholas crushed balls very like uh, it was before youtube so you, you can't i guess there's not a lot of video out there but the dude hit the ball so hard but without aaron we had no one to like pass the ball to brock to then set kundi or something you know right so, uh it all starts with aaron absolutely he, he was such a such a great player and uh i mean he's obviously a great coach too because his programs are doing very well so we had myself Shula, Brock, Nick, and I think we may have had some other, oh, we actually, well, we had Jordan Turner who played on the junior national team and he didn't even start. Like we had so many good players. We That's had, so stacked. Yeah. It, we, we had a wild team. And like I said, we didn't, I think we lost one or two sets that entire year, crushing everybody. Uh, and after we won the national championship, we're all like, you know, we're excited and the, the, the head of the CCAA said at the, the, when he's giving, when he's doing the speech to give us our medals, this was the best uh, college team ever. Granted, that was like, what, 16 years ago or something like that. But that being said, I don't know if anybody would have beat us, any of the teams I've seen since. Like, we were really good. That might be the greatest CCAA team of all time, still. Possibly. Which is super not humble to say. But because the, a team is 12 players, I'm not talking about me or my team. I'm saying that team was incredible. You know, it, was, it just had a crazy composition. But the numbers speak for themselves if you only dropped one or two sets all season. We didn't lose a game to any university teams either. We went to a Christmas tournament where we played Queens, U of S, and some other schools. And we won the tournament. And that year, we actually went down to BYU. That was something else we did at Christmas. And, uh, and we beat them. I've lied. We, we played them twice. They beat us the first night in three. That was the first time we lost all season. And we went into the, the little room they give us after the game. And we're all like, oh, that was a pretty cool experience, you know. Because there's thousands of people at the BYU gym always. And we're eating the pizza they've given us. And Keith walks in and he is livid at us. We're like, well, we thought we played an okay game. Turns out, no. Keith is super pissed at us, and rightfully so. I don't really remember the game, but we probably played like a bunch of chickens. We're probably so scared. And then we came out the next night, and we beat them in five. And from there, I think four of us got offered full scholarships. I was the only one silly enough to take it. No, I did. I did. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So I, and I took the scholarship. Uh, everybody else went to U of A or U of C, which I ended up doing, so maybe I should have just done that in the first place. Right. But yeah, that was an incredible team. The next year, it was a, it was a very different team. It was a lot younger. Um, but we did gain Mark Dodds, who came mm. from... He was on the national team. Now the coach of U of S. That's right. He came from U of S to, uh, to RDC. So me, him, and a, a lot of other junior national team guys. Um, and guys I played, uh, I played with since I was like a kid. It was a pretty different composition but we, we, again, we won the national championship. We did lose some sets here and there. We actually lost a game to Sate. Um, it was like one of our first games in the first semester. And I haven't really told many people this, but I remember on the bus ride home from Sate to Red Deer, 
I sat way at the front. I tried to get away from the team and obviously the girls team. The girls team is on the bus too. I just broke down crying for like half an hour because it's the first game I've lost in a couple years. And I feel awful because in my head, I'm supposed to be the leader of this team, right? And who knows what, maybe we're going to start losing at this point. Maybe, maybe I don't got it like that. Maybe I can't lead or whatever. And I just felt so bad for ruining Keith's legacy, which of course I didn't. But it's easy, especially at that age and with those and with that pressure on you to maybe spiral into, I don't know what's going to happen from here on out. Mm-hmm. Someone put a dent in our armor. Yeah, because uh, we, we, we did win the rest of the games that semester. And right before Christmas, I rolled my ankle and I was out for like two months. Um, so things, at least for me personally, it was the first big injury. It was a rough time. But in that time, uh, Mark Dodds was allowed to play in the second part of the season. He, was, he didn't play the first semester. There were some academic issues he had to take care of. And then, and then we just kind of thundered teams in the second semester. And he won player of the year. He won player of the year in Canada playing one semester. That's how dominant Mark was. That's insane. Mm-hmm. So you finish up your second year at RDC. What are you thinking after that? I'm thinking... Because uh, I'm playing with the national team in the summer. Right. I think that was the... F- no, that was maybe the second year. I was with the national team. I was thinking about going pro, actually. I realized school is okay. I really enjoy the volleyball. I'm not incredibly academic. So maybe maybe I should just go pro. So I tried to get an agent. So I was waffling, waffling back and forth all summer with the national team. There was one opportunity. It's probably best I didn't take it. So late, I think it was late August, I told Terry and I told one of the teammates from U of A that, are, that was on the national team, I think I'm going to come to U of A. I think we should do that. So we did that. We had a lot of fun. We, we won a national championship that year as well. But what led you to that decision to go to U of A anyway? Because you could continue to just keep dominating teams at the RDC, at the college level. True, but that, that I mean, you said it, at that level... Like I've, I grew up getting beat constantly mm-hmm. and wanting to compete at a higher level. So I wanted to play at the highest level that mm-hmm. was possible. Uh, and you, like I, Terry is a fantastic coach. I knew at this point, obviously, I want to play pro at some point. Terry had an amazing career, Hall of Fame professional career. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he actually has a trophy in his house. He has a little trophy room in his basement that we see at the Christmas party every year. And it's cool for the players to look through all his old jerseys and all the old trophies. And he has a trophy from a club in Japan uh, that says greatest player ever. Um, I think they gave it to him years after he played. They must have like flown him back at like some ceremony. Was like That stands alone in the trophy case or what? Well, it's, it's on top. It's definitely on top. <laughs> and it's, it, it is funny because it's written in English and it's from a Japanese club. It's just greatest player ever. And it's kind of like twist your head around. Like, hold on a minute. Like, ever, ever? Or like in the club? Because he played back in the day on the national team with the, the, the greatest thing ever to happen in volleyball, which is the 1984 Olympic team. He, he, I, actually, I don't know if he was the captain, but he was a very big part of that team. So he's playing against Karch Karai and mm. Timmins, Buck, and all those crazy Americans against those Russians. And at this point, Canada was really, they were were sought after. 
so that's why he was able to play in places like Japan and whatnot and do really, really well. Sure. So I wanted to learn under a guy like that. Um, that's actually one of my only regrets about playing at U of A is I didn't learn more from Terry. But he was a fantastic guy to play for. He's so charismatic. You just want to play for him. You want to do well. Did you go in the same year as Aaron? No. Okay. No. So Aaron went the year before. Okay. So my second year at RDC, he wasn't there. Right. And yeah. it was a huge hole. Yeah. But, but he was already at U of A at that point. Yeah, he was at U of A. Okay. It's funny, Aaron tells a story about how he's from Edmonton. His father and his brother are U of A legacies in football. Like, they're they're a big deal there. But Aaron played volleyball and didn't get recruited by Terry. And eventually, after Aaron did a couple years at RDC, he did get recruited by Terry. And I, I believe he was the captain just because he developed into such a great player. Although it was kind of hard to play with. Aaron at times because his freaking feet uh, sweat so much. So like walking around the court, you can see like droplets. So we would actively have to clean those up. But hey, he's working hard, right? And so how many years you spent at U of A? Two? Two. two. Yeah. So you two. did two and two. Yeah. Okay. We, uh, in the second year, we made it to the final, the national final. And we got thundered. Probably never lost a game this bad. It's pretty epic of... People my age who knew volleyball or were playing volleyball at that point, it was a heavy, heavy meltdown. I think we got beat like 25, 6 or 8 in one of the sets of a national final. Like it was a severe beatdown. We, uh, we got beat by uh, Trinity. I think it was their first championship. And holy crap, they, they really handed it to us. What did you learn from that loss? What, what I told myself is, okay, this is not the end. The, like, the idea was to keep playing and do stuff after that. Aaron Shula was not on that team. Um, I remember before the season going to Terry's office because I decided to come back to U of A for another one. And I remember telling him, I, I think reception is going to be our downfall. <laughs> I'm like predicting that we're going to lose. Like I would love to start receiving um, I'm left-handed, so it's awkward. Like, I would love to take some reps. I feel like I could help the team doing that. He said, I think we're going to be okay. We'll just stick with the way we have it. You know, we'll, we'll keep you on the opposite. So, okay. So we did do well all year. We lost, like, one game. And then we didn't lose again uh, until the national final <laughs> when we got thundered. And it was, granted, Trinity was serving very hard. It's like they were playing in 2016, just like crushing balls, you know, because that wasn't necessarily the norm in 2004 or whatever. Uh, but reception was definitely our downfall. And then I actually played a year of pro with some of those guys that thundered us in that national final. From Trinity. Yeah. So it was nice to have, be on the same team at that point. So you finish up two years at U of A and you're thinking professional now? At this point, I've done four years there's the option to come back to play five, but I've realized I've done pretty much everything I can at the post-secondary level. Like I've won three championships and got thundered for a silver medal. What else can I really do? And like I said, Terry Danilik is such a wealth of knowledge, but I wasn't learning as much as I thought I could have. And academics were not huge for me at this point. I was, I was there to play volleyball. So my thought process was this university university in general will always be there this is not going anywhere my body on the other hand will break down at one point so if i leave school a year early to go play professionally 
that translates to me getting another year on the back end of my career where I'm making more money. So that's what I did. I left. And in theory, I guess I got an extra year and the school is still there. Like I'm in school. So it, it worked out. Sorry, just to circle back a bit, you keep mentioning how you wished you had learned more from Terry. So speaking to whoever's listening that might be coming up, what advice would you give someone looking back on it now that you'd wished you had done more to get around Terry or had more exposure to his knowledge and uh, pick his brain a little bit more? I don't know what else I could have done. Oh, first I'll say, I'll tell you what Murray Grappenting told me. He was the captain of the national team for a long time. He was the best blocker in the world in, I think, 1999. Uh, He told me that even garbage coaches, you can learn from even the worst coaches. They have something to give. Whereas I was lucky. I always had really good coaches, and it's why I was able to progress. But in terms of my specific situation at U of A, thinking back, I'm sure I could have communicated better with Terry what I needed hmm. or what I, not even what I needed. Cause he probably knew what I needed. Like, I didn't, I don't know. Like the guy is, is an encyclopedia of volleyball. I, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a 34 year old, I could have been a better communicator, but when you're 20 years old, you're such an idiot. Your mind doesn't develop till you're 25. And at that point, everybody's out of school. You're so full of hormones when you're 20. You're just driving. Like, it's just, that, that's like the peak of male, like, stupidity, basically. They're just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this way. And then I'm going to hit that ball like this. And you don't think about the game scientifically. Like, when, think about, there's so many athletes that were nuts when they were young. And they became savants later in their career like mm-hmm. uh, i've heard chris pronger was that way mm-hmm. i heard he was crazy when he was young and later in his career he was such a, he's like a, a geophysicist out there like he's just calculating everything same thing with federer roger federer apparently was nuts when he was young and now he's he's the scientist he's right a surgeon out there exactly um so what i've done now is compare myself to two incredible players but i that is kind of how my development went I was pretty rammy at that point. And later in my career, I became much more mindful about the way I played the game, and I was much better. That's kind of how that works. So now let's jump forward to your international career. And like you were saying before, yeah, you wanted to leave a little bit early, just get a little head start on your international play. But first and foremost, you had hinted at it earlier in the segment, just about how you had an offer, but it may not be the best one for you. And it's okay to leave it on the table. How do you decide what's best for you? Well, at that point, it was a pretty, pretty easy choice. The, the, the one option was I could play for Paris Volley, which was an, it still is a very prestigious program. And it has a big Canadian connection. They'd won the Champions League with my volleyball hero, uh, Paul Durden, and some other Canadians. And Glenn Hogue was the coach of that team. But this was on their like Div 3 team that I was offered. So I realized I'm not going to make a lot of money. And, or I could go play for Terry who, and play with those guys one more year. So the choice was basically made for me. The next year, it was, it was a more difficult choice. After we got thundered in that final, mm-hmm. my thought was, okay, well, I should move on. I feel like I've done everything I can here. 
So that was the first year they recreated the FTC, the full-time training center with the national team. This is something that they did in the 80s. This is what uh, Terry Daniluk and Glenn Hogue and guys of that era on the 84 team, they trained full-time in Canada because uh, the rules were different about playing pro. So they brought this back, and the idea was to create a situation where Canadian players can build themselves up to transition into the international game, just the grind of it. So I signed up for that. There was like five of us um, training in Winnipeg in the winter. It was rough. <laughs> we had no one to play. And I don't even think, we, yeah, we didn't have everybody. We didn't have every position filled. So we were just lifting a lot of weights, doing a lot of training and playing no games. Hmm. So it was not enjoyable. Halfway through that season, we had the world championship. A player got injured. I should mention, a lot of how I got to where I was was other people getting injured and me just being ready to step into that role. So someone got injured, and me and Louis-Pierre Mainville, who we were both really young guys at this point, we were able to go on this trip to play uh, the World Championship. I got scouted early in the tournament, and uh, I decided to go play pro instead of staying that whole year in Winnipeg just hitting weights like we were training we were training in this place called Lipset Hall which is a, an old military gym it's it had basically been abandoned by the military like they weren't even like putting toilet paper back in it like the water was yellow mm. it was a rough situation anyway so this is where the national team is training the floor is so hard we're not playing we're just doing drills for months and months and months um, I'm like okay I'm out of here <laughs> I'm going to go play professionally. So at the tournament, I told Glenn Hogue, he's the coach at this point, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the FTC. I'm going to go play professionally somewhere. And he told me, well, there will be some repercussions. Wish there were. Uh, but I went and played my first year in Poland and played professionally. That was a crazy situation. <laughs> what was so crazy about it? This, okay, this is nutty. I've realized I'm studying psychology now. I remember very little of like the seven months I spent in Poland. Hmm. I think my mind has blocked it out, a lot of it, just because it was such a rough experience for me. Obviously, they took decent care. They have to take care of their products. But for, for example, I remember the first day I got there, I got into my little apartment. Uh, I just, it was a long day of travel for me at this point. I'm basically in the industrial regina of Poland. It's like a tough place. Obviously, I don't speak the language. I remember I get into my apartment and I, I just, I realize I sit down, I look at this little box I'm in and I just start crying. Like, what have, what have I done? Like, I could be at U of A playing with like all my friends and whatnot. It's the same surface as the FTC though, isn't it? S mm, no. <laughs> like, it, uh, yeah, it was just... Uh, it was, it, was, it was tough emotionally that huh. whole year because this team, I believe they had just gotten into the first league. This is just when Poland is starting to bring in foreigners and volleyball is getting huge there, financially speaking. It's always been a big sport in Poland, but now they're really starting to throw money into the sport. And then the team had pretty high expectations and they had high performance goals without the high performance anything else. So it, it, it was tough. It was a tough year. What attracted you to go over there in the first place, though? Strictly money? 
Oh, well, that was certainly a big part of it because I didn't know how else I was going to support myself coming yeah. out of university. And also it was, Poland had just won the world championship like a couple of weeks earlier. So I knew it was a, it was a good league. Um, and it was, we weren't that good, but, the, mm. and I was terrible. I played terrible that year, but it was great to play in that league, you know, and just see what professional volleyball could be like. The first thing I remember, not the first thing, one thing that I remember noticing right away is this, the players in this league, a lot of them were not athletically gifted, but they were so good at the game. And that made me realize, okay, you don't have to be athletic to play volleyball. You just have to get the game really well. Whereas in university in Canada, the best teams had the most athletic players. Whereas there, that really wasn't the case. So in a sense, it was almost kind of like BYU all over again, where you're like, this is not for me. Well, yes. Although there was substantially more alcohol consumption in Poland than there was at BYU. Sure. Uh, it was, but at the end of the season, you were thinking, I'm not going to return again though, right? No. Yeah. I wasn't going to go to that team again. I knew I wanted to keep playing professionally. Sure. Yeah. It was really nice coming home when all, all the players who stayed back in the FTC, I knew how hard they had worked all year, like so hard. And they, I, I, I had like a little pocket of money now and I, I was doing, I was playing the game. I wasn't just training, you know? So that was super nice. And then the next year, basically everybody played pro. Uh, but I, I did like having that little one year of playing at the start to get my feet wet, even though it was super hard. That being said, I think the vast majority of players really struggle their first year overseas just because it's you lose your social net. You don't speak the language. It's, it's just very difficult. And you can't keep that social net. I, I, like Facebook had just come out, so... I'm like, all right, fine, I'll do this Facebook thing. And even talking to people, say like my friends back at U of A, they have their whole U of A thing going on, right? Yeah, so yeah. even like good friends, it's just it's just not easy to have a conversation because there's completely different things going on and different time zones. And from the player's perspective in Europe, it's like, oh, why, why, what's, where are my friends at? But it's like, well, they're just doing their thing, right? So yeah, it's it's tough as a young fella. But that didn't stop you from continuing on your pro career, though. No, because I knew I still wanted to play the game. Right. It was weird. When I went to, to Poland, the first two games I played, I was super dominant. And the, the team, my teammates were like, oh my God, like, how old are you? How long have you been doing this? I'm like, oh my God, thanks, guys. You know. And then I did a week of practice with the coach there. And my game went, it was garbage. Like, I played terrible the whole season. There was, like, maybe two games in the entire season that I played at a decent level. But, yeah, I was just bad. So I wanted to get out of there. Hmm. Um, that summer was a little difficult because I came back. Like Glenn Hogue had told me, there was going to be some consequences. So it was the first time that Canada was back in the World League in a, in a couple years because we, we had lost so much money. We couldn't, like, Volleyball Canada couldn't do it. And I was left off that roster. So that was tough because then I just trained all summer, did some like other little things while the team was away at World League. That being said, the team went through like eight players playing opposite that year in the World League. Like guys just kept getting injured or not being able to do the job. So you're like, that could have been me. I could have done a better job, hopefully, considering that was my work. But who knows? I had to pay the repercussions. Although 
I don't know if you can tell I am a little bitter about it sure. because the FTC has been going ever since 2006 or whatever. And the goal now is if you can get a contract halfway through, you just go. Hmm. It's like, good for you. Go play, you know, because the whole idea was to get players ready mm-hmm. to go. And that's what I did. And I got penalized for it. So where were the countries that you played, though? So professionally, uh, my first year was in Poland. Then I went to France. Then I played for like a couple months in Russia. And that was a rough situation. I left there. I came back to France, but a different team. That was nice, right on the southern coast, right in the Mediterranean there. After that, I played in Spain. Again, right in the south, right on the water. That was nice. From there, I went to Turkey. And I wasn't enjoying life, so I tried to retire. Didn't work. What brought you out of retirement? Money. It was a crazy situation. I was in Ottawa thinking about what I'm going to do next. I was trying to look into what do you, uh, renewable energy and whatnot. And I'm walking with my girlfriend at the time through Ikea, and I get a text message from some crazy number. It's like, hi, I'm so-and-so from the Allen Sport and Culture Club in the United Arab Emirates, we'd like you to come play in this tournament. I hadn't played in months at this point. I'm retired. I'm like, yeah. Well, first I was like, hey, look at this text message I just got. Because we're looking at like pots and pans and stuff. Um, she's like, wow, maybe you should maybe you should go play. I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. Like this could be a super shady situation. Um, and I'm like, I have an idea. I have a way to get out of this. I'm going to ask them to pay me double. <laughs> what they've offered. So I sent this back to this mystery phone number and we get to the betting section of Ikea and I get a message back. They're like, okay, like, holy crap. Like I have to go it now. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of days later I was in the United Arab Emirates playing for like a month. Um, it was the craziest contract. It's so weird when you go there they have a league, but they also have these cups, um, the Prince's cup, the King's cup, these sorts of things. And it's like a, it's like a week long tournament. Uh, but you go and you train for a month and then you play like five, six games in a week. So that's what I thought I was doing. But I, I, well, I thought I was going to play in the league for a month, but I didn't. I just went and trained for three weeks, hung out a lot. It's like the, the town I was in was like an hour away from Dubai. So I would go to Dubai and just like look at stuff. It's pretty cool. And then they tell me the tournament is in a, it's in Saudi Arabia. So we, we trained a couple, I trained a couple days with the team. Then we went to Riyadh and we played a five-day tournament. We did pretty well, considering I was so out of shape. I did okay. And we moved on to the next round, but our team didn't know that. We had calculated it wrong. So we went back, we flew back to the United Arab Emirates. And then they were reading in the paper. They're like, we don't know where the Allen team is. Like, we advance. I'm like, awesome. You guys figure that out. I'm going to get this money and get out of here. Mm-hmm. So I, I left from there. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty cool experience. And then I just joined up with the national team again. I'm like, okay, screw it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep playing. Was Olympics always your goal? Yeah, when, pretty when, much. When was that a goal for you? The whole way through, right okay. from when I started. Okay. Because even playing pro-secondary, the team, the national team hadn't been to the Olympics in a long time. Uh, the team went in 92, but the team, the benchmark is the 84 team. I think they finished fourth, but, but the team was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to get the team back there or helped the team get back there. But I mean, I'm really proud to say that the team 
the years I was on, every year we did get better. So it was nice to see that progression. Yeah, there's those. always growth. Yeah, that I mean, and that doesn't always happen. So that it, that was nice. Did you feel like you got into a pretty good groove after a few years of playing professional under your belt, or was every year different because you're in a different location? Every year is definitely different, but you get used to the lifestyle. Um, you you're able to ad, uh, adapt. Things don't throw you off because you just expect things to be completely different. The first year you go. You take like two giant hockey bags worth of stuff. And then you realize later in the career, all you need is your passport and your credit card and you're going to be fine. Things will work out. You don't need everything. Um, and that's kind of the life. I have to say, I really liked that part of pro. The players come from all over the world. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, like what you, the language you speak or whatever, because everybody basically communicates the same way on the volleyball court. What matters is can you do it? You know, it doesn't matter what you look like. Or even how athletic you are. It's what is your efficiency? What is what is your efficiency rate? Are you going to make us better or worse? People have to be able to work with you. It's your job, right? So you, if you're a great player, but you're a complete train wreck, nobody wants to hire you, right? So if you can do the job, and if you can not interfere with other people's life in a negative way, if you can help a, a club, that's how you keep playing. So after that, I played in... I think it was Korea. I tried out for a Korean team that summer. So I played in South Korea that year. The year after I played, oh, I was injured. And then the year after that, I played in China. Oh no, I missed a whole year that I tried to play in Puerto Rico. It was the year after South Korea. In my first practice in Puerto Rico, I exploded my shoulder. Hmm. Um, and they said it was okay. This is a whole huge issue. This is—I don't know if we have time for this. Well, we can record. All right. So I go to Puerto Rico. They're trying to expand their league, so they're paying players more. It's like a three-month season. My plan was to play the first half of the year there, and then pick up another half-year contract somewhere else in Europe. So I go to Puerto Rico, and uh, I'm enjoying the setting that I'm in. The first practice, we have this three-hour practice, and it's way too long, if I'm honest. Um, and I hadn't been training because we had... We, it was like the first time ever I'd had like two months off from the national team. So I go to this pro team. I'm thundering serves. And my last serve, I'm like, okay, this is the one. I'm going to crush this. And I do, but I feel something go crazy in my shoulder. And it's so hot, and it's like cramped in a weird position, like forward. Like, whatever, I'll just stretch it out. I'll be fine. Over the course of the next two weeks, me and the Puerto Rican physio, we realize something's torn because I can't even, like as soon as my arm gets up to a certain position, a couple degrees in my swing, feels like my arm isn't part of my body. It's like throwing a bat or something. And then it comes down to it, like more degrees. And there I have control of my arm again. It was hmm. the weirdest sensation. So I had a torn labrum. So I, I leaving Puerto Rico, they paid me for one, one of the months. But then they claimed that I had known I was injured when I went there. And I had come to take this team's money and bail. Uh, so that was a huge issue. Because I'm like, no, I came. I tried to play for your club. I got injured in this massive practice that we shouldn't have had on the first day. Norseca got involved. Norseca is the governing body. of uh, in, It's North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And the club complained to Norseca. They're like, 
this guy owes us money. He should pay us back half of what we paid him. I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. Like I, we signed a contract. I tried to play. I got injured. That's sport. Mm-hmm. Norseka sided with them. So it became a situation where I had to pay back all the money or I would be blocked from international transfers. So there's no pro league in Canada at that point. I can't play in Canada. I have to go somewhere. And to do that, I need to be transferred internationally. And Norseka has blocked this. So you don't have a choice, really? No. So by the end of it, I have to pay all this money back or I can't even play in national team stuff. To put on top of that, I paid for my shoulder surgery out of my own pocket. The Canadian medical system is great if you're not an athlete. That's right. But I had to get stuff done very quickly. So I paid for the MRI. I went down to California, got that surgery done, which was very interesting. Uh, I talked to them on the phone. It was like Misty Mays, Karchkreis, Kerry Walsh's surgeon. So I called this office. You're in good hands. Yeah, I really was. I called them. Like, hey, I need to get this surgery. I'm a pro player from, from Canada. I know these players. They told me to contact you. But I have, they're like, okay, great. We can fit you in next week. Um, 60 grand. Uh, so in Canadian dollars, that's like a lot. That's a million dollars. Yeah, basically. It might as well be. <laughs> Um, like, so I'm Canadian. I'm calling you from Ottawa. I'm going to have to pay for this out of my own pocket with my monopoly money up here. They're like, oh, okay, well give us $6,000 and we'll do it. So I'm like, oh, well that I can do. Okay, great. So I went down there and I just broke off a wad of American cash and paid him with that. And then there's rehab. I've got super lucky with the rehab guy. It was the, the physio, the the physical therapist for the Anaheim angels. So he knows shoulders. Like at this physio clinic I'm in, every day I go in, there's Olympic sprinters like bringing in their medals. There's NFL dudes. There's pitchers, obviously, from... From, from like, the Angels. Yeah. yeah. And like NBA players are there. I remember I had a, a chat with the current coach of the Lakers. It was, it was so funny because he's still playing in the NBA at this point. Mm. And we're both talking about like how this might be the end of our careers. He's like, I'm just trying to get picked up by Memphis at this point. This is some, something like that. Like he was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get traded or not. So it was cool speaking like on any level of professional sport, it's the same issues. So I, I had this great situation, but I had to, it, it, it cost a lot of money. So I had to pay for, I wasn't making money all year. I was paying rent, basically live a year without making any money. And I had to give back this massive chunk of change to this club. And I had to pay for these medical bills. So it was a super hard winter, if I'm honest. The next summer, I start coming to national team practices, helping out. I start training with what they have there at the FTC. And I'm working my way back. I get injured. There's a lot, I don't know. There's lots of things that happen. But I work my way back to the national team. And I, there's injuries on the national team at this point. So they put me on the World League roster. I just started hitting balls again. Like from the shoulder surgery. Shoulder's right? okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's like still barely. Like I'm barely playing volleyball at this point. I can hardly hit a ball. So I'm able to... Barely start swinging. And they put me on the, the World League roster as like a if worst case scenario. Worst case scenario hits basically right away. Um, the three guys who are playing opposite, who are healthy, they, they go down. So I have to go in. But because I had that year off and I got my mind in a better place, 
I studied the game a lot more too. And even though I couldn't hit the ball very hard, I was way more efficient with what I was doing. And that was the best World League campaign Canada had. We made it to the final, the final round. We, we beat Russia, who had just won the Olympics. So just playing the game more efficiently uh, and being in a better mental space allowed me to help the team more than I ever had when I was fully healthy. It was a very interesting experience, and I learned a lot. Well, and you had alluded to it earlier about how that's what you first noticed when you started playing professionally. It wasn't just guys just trying to crush the ball, ram it down your throat. They were just so crafty, and they knew the game so well, and they, they knew they had to be efficient if they wanted to have a lengthy career. Yeah. So at this point, I'm like 27, and I'm realizing that, and it, I'm starting to apex into like the prime of my career where the body can still do it physically and the mind I've like like I said 25 that's when your brain (laughs) like solidifies so I'm starting to reach the peak of my game even though I'm not physically able to do it because of the surgery uh, the rest of my body is okay at this point I allowed the game to come to me at this point I I got out of deciding okay this is what's over there I'm gonna hit cross on this play if I get set it became more of a situation where, okay, well, this is the pass we've got, so this is where the blockers are going to be. Okay, this is where the set is. Okay, I've been set. This is where the blockers are. Chances are the defenders are over there. This is what they're giving me. This is what I'll take. So opposed to deciding what I'm going to do before, you take what they give you. You, It's like judo or whatever. Like You use their momentum against them, and sure. I was way more efficient that way. So at this point, you were eyeing up Rio Olympics 2016. Yeah. I am severely injured at this point. After the world championship in 2000 and I believe 14. That was the year I met my wife. Forget what I said before. <laughs> like I said, they melt together. Uh, at the tournament, or previously at, at, a, at a tournament earlier in the summer, I remember jumping um we were playing in Mexico. The floor was really hard, and I landed straight leg on one leg. And I remember thinking, "Frick, that's going to be a problem." Like, I'd never landed like that before. Sure. And I woke up the next morning, and my knee was clicking. And I'm like, "My knees have never clicked. This is an issue." And over the course of that summer training, and then we went to the World Championship. It got to the point where I had no control over my knee in between certain degrees of flexion. I don't know what's going on. So after that season, I decided to take some time off and the knee got worse and worse. And I realized maybe this is a surgery situation. So I had another major surgery done in Poland. The cartilage on my knee or at the bottom of my femur was completely chewed up and I had a bone spur there. So they went in, they did like a stem cells, uh, stem cell surgery that you can't have done here. Um, and it was like a year and a half before I got back to playing. So I'm doing a year and a half rehab at this point. But I've had the surgery shoulder before. So I'm like, okay, I, I know I can do this. You just have to keep working. But a year and a half is a long freaking time. Absolutely. So I finally get back to a point where I can play the game at a decent level about a month uh, in like December, basically, of 2015. We're hosting the Olympic qualifier in Edmonton in January, I believe it was. So I get to a point where I'm basically on one leg, but we did well enough to get to the final. We're playing Cuban in the final, and we fell apart. 
and Cuba qualified for the Olympics. That was pretty devast. That was the most devastating loss of my career. It's that and that that final in university, actually, which is where you're sitting on at the front of the bus. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The um, oh, the U of A. Yeah. The one where you got thundered. Yeah. Against Trinity. Exactly. That was a massive. That was super hard to take. Equ- probably equally as hard, even though one is to go to the Olympics. One's for like a Canadian tournament, basically, when you boil it down. But at the time, exactly. Your world. Exactly. It's the highest level that you can possibly play at at that point. So it's the it's everything. A big deal. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But looking at it, big picture, missing the Olympics is much bigger because it had been my goal for 10 years, basically, yeah. to get us there. Walking over to my wife after that game, I didn't realize how much it would hit me, but I, I told her, I'm sorry, like I couldn't do it. And then I can't, she broke down. I'm like, well, if you're going to cry, I'm going to cry. So, uh, but I didn't even realize there was another chance for the, the Canadian team to qualify. It was months later. It was in May or something. It was at a, a last chance tournament in Japan. Okay. Um, at this point, my leg is so messed up, I can't. Like, I'm having trouble, like, getting around. So playing volleyball is kind of out of the question. It's because that year and a half I had done so much compensating for my right knee with my left knee, the cartilage in my left knee tore. So I have to get a surgery in Ottawa. It's the first surgery I've had done in Canada. I get a scope done in my knee, and I'm really not recovering properly. So I get the surgery done. The team qualifies for the Olympics. I've seen them do this. It's like, I don't know, three in the morning. And I'm watching the, the game. And I'm getting all the texts from the Team Canada group. And seeing everybody just freaking out in the hotel in Japan. It was, it's, I was so happy for these dudes. Because we just qualified for the Olympics. Like we hadn't done that really in a long time. That's a big deal. Massive. And we'd been building for a decade to get to a level where we could have a shot at doing this. But I'm in my bed in Ottawa at three in the morning watching this. So it was a lot of mixed feelings that I'm so happy right now for these guys. And then I'm realizing I got to get back. Like something's got to change. So I've never been an advocate of like injections or anything, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to try cortisone. I'm going to try a cortisone shot, see if that'll even help. But nothing helped how painful it was. So a couple weeks later, I'm in the gym training. And I'm like, I need to make a choice. Like, I've tried everything I can. My knees are just messed up at this point. Not to mention, I have three herniated discs in my back. So that was starting to flare up because I couldn't support myself with the knees. Um, it's the compensation I, part of it. Yeah, again, right? but I played my whole career with three herniated discs, mm. the bottom three discs, mm. and it would be an issue from time to time. But anyway, so I'm just, I'm a mess at this point. And I decide, okay, I'm going to try to jog around the gym to start a proper warm up, And I can't even do that properly. So I decide this is it. This 13 year, actually it's 15 year if you count the junior years, which I don't really, although I just did. <laughs> um, this career is over i can't do it anymore about a month later are playing in the olympics in rio and i'm back in canada and pretty much everybody still thinks i'm on the national team at this point so the first game of the olympics they're playing the u.s and they thunder them in three i'm sitting at a bar with with my wife jamie and 
a whole schwack of volleyball people because it's a huge celebration that Canada is in the Olympics. And we're watching this and again, mixed feelings. I'm so happy for this, the guys, but I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm getting texts during the games. Like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. Like you guys are doing so well. I'm like, yeah, thank you. I'm not on the team. <laughs> um, I'm painting a gloomy picture. I apologize. It was just a really tough time. It was a tough way to go out when like my entire goal, my whole career was to get help get Canada to the Olympics and I couldn't do it. They did it and I'm super happy for them, but it was, it's, just, it's a tough way to go out. It doesn't bother me as much anymore for the first like six months. I'm like, I can't sleep. I'm like waking up in the middle of the night, nightmares about volleyball. But I think most athletes go through that mm-hmm. when they retire. So then following that Olympic experience where you were not on the team anymore, did you have to step away from the game at all to just clear your mind and just to reset and be at peace with the fact that now you are for real trying to live just a normal life now? So I dealt with it. I tried to deal with it as much as I could with humor. That being said, I know a lot of guys that I was, guys that I looked up to like my heroes in volleyball that when they retired, it took them so long to transition into a normal life because they were so good and it's all they'd ever done. So transitioning was really hard. For me, I think the easiest, the, well, the first step is admit that like it's over and it's going to be hard. I met with sports psychologists for years before and even at the time. It's like a death in the family. Like a whole persona is dying. So you have to, allow yourself to treat it that way and process it. And again, like in, like an injury, it takes like two years to get into something else. And it's basically taken me that long. And it's, it's ironic you ask that because just within the last month or so, I've noticed myself being a fan of volleyball again. Like I enjoy watching it. Um, I actually almost enjoy watching women's volleyball more. I realize you have to be such a better volleyball player to be a high level women's volleyball player than you do men's just because the rallies are longer. Hmm. You have to be so exact because you didn't step into coaching right away though, or the coaching route. I kind of did. I realized, okay, my plan was to go back to school. So that's what I did. We, Jamie and I, we were trying to figure out where we, where we were going to settle. We were thinking, I mean, literally anywhere around the world, we had no roots, but we decided Calgary was a nice place. We came here. It's easier for her to get, she, she's a teacher. She's a teacher now. She retired. I decided, okay, I want to go back to school. That was the plan. I'm going to go to UFC. I know the coach, Rod Durant. I actually knew the coach at Mount Royal, but I decided to yeah, Sean. choose. Yeah, yeah Sean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I chose UFC. And part of how I got into school, I got Rod's help because I'll help coach the team. You help me try to find a way into school. We'll make that happen. Um, so really, I got into coaching pretty quickly after I retired. And that, that's an interesting transition as well. I remember the first game being on the bench and I'm getting shots of adrenaline as soon as the game starts because for ever since I was a child, as soon as the game starts, that's when, boom, you're ready to go. That's when you're supposed to be peaking the, uh, the arousal level. And I'm, I'm noticing this in myself and I'm sitting there basically shaking and I'm like, I wonder if people can see me shaking and I need to get rid of this. So it took about half the season to be able to keep that arousal level much lower because you need it lower to coach, to make intelligent decisions. 
but that's an interesting transition in itself. So you coached at UFC, you also coached at SAIT, both at the assistant level position, but you got your first head coaching opportunity with Cold Garden in the One Volleyball League this past summer. But a little twist, it was also the first time coaching a women's team too for you. Yes, and it is, it is drastically different coaching, <laughs> coaching young men versus women and then a wide array of ages. Like our youngest players were 19, our eldest was like 37. So it was like a pro team, basically. But uh, it took me about half the season, which isn't that long, to understand that there are vast differences in the way you coach the men versus women. I realized everything that was intuitive and felt right was wrong. That's not the way to coach women. Um, So... the girls on the team make fun of me because I was making fun of myself a lot as to all the research I had done on on how to coach women. And we would reference it a lot, just how silly it is. Because I, I would constantly be saying, you know, ladies, I've learned in my research that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they would roll their eyes. But there was always something to it, you know. Um, so it was a struggle to trust the literature in changing the way uh, to coach. Um, but it did have a, I think it had a decent size effect on the results that we had. Also, we switched around our lineup a little bit. And really, I think that's mostly what did it. We realized, I think a lot of players who haven't played pro, the, 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 the thought is, well, if we're, this is going to be a professional league, it has to be incredibly serious. We have to, it can't be enjoyable if it's if you're enjoying it too much if you're being silly you're not being professional right away joining the national team when i was 18 i realized the fellas that i looked up to the most now that i'm seeing them in practice every day these are the goofiest dudes Hmm. and these are the guys that are having the most success and then playing professionally you realize it can be really fun it doesn't have to be incredibly there's definitely times where it has to be serious but every other time You've got to be enjoying yourself. It's your work. So we tried to create that environment this past season with the Cold Garden Tropicals. They named themselves. It was, it was either that. They had a couple options. That or like the Tropical Dynasty or something. I don't know. But the Tropicals is a fantastic name now that it's a thing. Who gets credit for that? The, well, the team. The team. Cause yeah, they, but someone must have come up with it. Either Dan Allard, who is the co, one of the co-owners of... Cold Garden, uh, the Cold Garden Beverage Company, shouts to them, fantastic company. And Blake Belding, he's the other uh, co-owner. So they came up with the options, they put it to the team, okay, and, uh, and they chose the Tropicals. Just, I, I was really hoping they wouldn't pick that name, but it's pretty dope. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Earlier in the show, you were talking about, you were alluding to your First Nations background. So tell us a little bit about what that background is. So my father is Cree. He's from Saskatchewan, and my mother is Ojibwe. She's from north of Toronto, uh, and they met at the University of Saskatchewan. So I'm um, I'm like a mix of what it, I'm like a superhero, basically, a mix of Cree and Ojibwe. What do you think is the biggest gap right now for Aboriginal youth to play at the highest levels? Why don't we see more Aboriginals playing at the U Sports and ACAC and CCAA levels? That is a huge question. And I'll try to boil it down, and I'll probably offend people, but I'll try to give the answer that I think it is. First, 
I've always thought the next generation of, of Olympians is running around a reservation somewhere. They don't even know it, that they have this potential. The geographical limitation is hard because, like I said, it's so hard to get to these communities. And it's not like they're coming down to southern Canada every week. It may be once a year if they, if they come, and it's so expensive. So just the mentality of thinking, well, I don't know if I'm good enough. That's a huge thing for the Aboriginal youth. Because, like I said, my, my father, he went to residential school. If you're taught you can't speak your language, every one of your ancestors is in hell because they weren't Christian. And you're physically and sexually abused. That is a generational problem. Because then, say, you come out of that and you, ha- you try to start a family. You don't know how to communicate. You bury things. The trauma is right there. And you know, the, the, the healthy way to deal with trauma is to talk about it and work through it. But if you're told, no, you can't speak, it becomes a generational problem. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so this is something that the next generation of Aboriginal children are starting to grow out of. For example, my brother and I, we're lucky we didn't have to go to residential school. It took a bunch of generations to really not, I won't say cripple, but mangle the First Nations people. It's going to take generations for us to heal from it, which I know sounds hokey, but it does take generations to learn how to even just allow yourself to be happy in what you are. It takes a long time. So there's the geographical issue and then the opportunity issue and then just allowing yourself to go for things. So th- there's a lot of roadblocks in the way. So that's kind of what Jamie and I are trying to do when we go to these First Nations. It's not just we're teaching volleyball. We're trying to let these kids know, like, you're very capable of like, on, the same, on the same level as everybody else in this country. Like, you just have to allow yourself to, 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 to believe that, to try it. So anyways, these are very lofty things, but this is the bulk of the issue I see. Anything you want to plug or promote? Follow the Tropic Hills on Instagram. That's a fun follow. It really is. Thank you so much for joining me on Story Island today. There's so much more, so much more we can get into, especially in your international playing days. I definitely want to do another session with you. If the people want it, we'll do it. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading the Play. For more content, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and you can also download other episodes at sportcalgary.ca. Make sure to check out the Facebook page Reading the Play, and to stay up to date on the latest RTP news, including new episodes, make sure to follow on Instagram at Reading the Play, and myself, Jeremy Lee, at Legacy. Oh, and also, make sure to follow Cold Garden Tropicals on Instagram. I really hope there's a piece of Dallas's story that impacts, inspires, and ignites you to help you win your day. And as always, I'll catch you in the next episode.